1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, the Word of God says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So I have preached three sermons from chapter 3 already. The first two were on the office and qualifications of overseers. And the third, this last Sunday, was on the office and qualifications of deacons. In these sermons, I have often used the phrase, and I hope your ears have keyed in on this, I have often used the phrase properly ordered or rightly ordered or not correctly or not properly ordered. And I, and, and I have attempted to make clear the biblical teaching on how these offices, the office of overseer and the office of, uh, of deacon, are to function in the church and how the Bible teaches how they are to be properly ordered and how the church itself is to be properly ordered in its leadership. In these final verses of chapter 3, Paul now turns his attention to the church. It would be a gross misunderstanding to read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and conclude that these instructions do not apply to you. You may not be an overseer. You may not be a deacon. You may be biblically unqualified for one or both offices and, and recognize that this, those, neither offices are going to be a, a way that you will serve the Lord in your lifetime. And you may be tempted then to read chapter 3 and, and it's, if you just look at the amount of space given to overseer, elder, and now the church, you may be tempted to think, well, this doesn't really apply to me. I can check out until he gets to something a little bit more closer to home. But friends, the application of chapter 3 is not about how individuals should function in the, these offices of overseer and elder, uh, overseer and deacon. But I think it's more about how the church should understand these offices and how these offices function to enable the church to be faithful to the Lord. Chapter 3 is about the church more than it is about individuals serving in a particular leadership office. If you are a member of the church, and I believe every word of chapter 3 is instructive for you. So what is the church? Well, the church sometimes references all believers in the world. So sometimes uh, this is referred to as the true church or the invisible church when Jesus returns to gather the saints to himself in heaven, he will gather the church. And we understand that mean all those who believed in faith, who are truly the, the children of God, he will gather them no matter what tribe or race, tongue or location on the world they are. He will gather his church, the true church, unto himself. And that's an appropriate 
and proper use of the term. But the overwhelming use of the term church in the New Testament is not referring to the universal church of all the redeemed. No, the overwhelming use of the church in the New Testament is in reference to a local congregation. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the instructions here are for the church local, the local fellowship of believers. So today when I use the term the church, I'm talking about you, defined as a local congregation responsible to one another under the lordship of Jesus. There is a need for the church to rediscover its purpose, its role, and its proper order. I am a child of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I was born in the 70s. The 80s were my childhood, and the 90s were my high school and college years. As such, I grew up in a church context that often chased after things that distracted her from her purpose, role, and proper order. If you're my age, maybe a little older, you may identify with some of these things, but here are some of the things that I experienced growing up. I experienced the church growth movement. The church growth movement tempted the church to abandon church discipline, membership covenants, doctrinal integrity, expectations of attendance, and even defined membership in an effort to grow. And the ultimate goal and the ultimate achievement of the church growth movement was just to gather a larger and larger crowd, whatever the cost. There were church leadership models that were based on secular corporate models, tempted, and they tempted the church to abandon biblical roles of overseers and deacons and focus on, more on vision casting than biblical faithfulness. And then there's just the general sense of cultural Christianity. It tempted the church to focus on the crowd and pleasing the masses. But when cultural Christianity collapsed and the culture abandoned a biblical worldview, rejected revealed truth and embraced a sexual revolution, the church was tempted and is tempted even today to chase cultural relevance at the expense of doctrinal fidelity. And what this has produced, where we are today, what this has produced is a present day church culture that has some real problems. Today, most churches have no expectations of membership. In other words, what it means to be a member of the church will not cost you anything. There are very little expectations placed on you. No expectation of attendance, no expectation of doctrinal integrity, no expectation of holy living. In the modern church today, there is essentially no active or or even an attempt to practice church discipline. If you remember, I, I have connected that to the abandonment of, of the proper order of elders, overseers, and deacons. And when you abandon those offices and the biblical order of those offices, there are consequences. And one of the consequences of that is we do not have a way, a good and effective and God-honoring way to, to practice church discipline. And so most of you 
unless you are of great advanced age, have never experienced a church effectively or biblically practicing church discipline. And of course, related to that is the disorder of church leadership in our elders, overseers, pastors, and deacons. Beyond these, the saddest reality of the present day church culture is the lost understanding of the church's witness to God's truth and the hope of the gospel. Now listen to me on this point carefully because this this point is the overarching reality of everything else I'm going to say today. Every faithful church and by extension, every member of a faithful church should be, must be, and is in their community the testimony of the truth of God and the hope of the gospel. Now, evidence of that no longer being true is an illustration I can give that I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident that most of you have experienced. A little while ago, we were doing Operation Meet the Neighbors, where we were going and meeting, knocking on the door of every home within a one-mile radius of this campus. I was on one of those nights. We were visiting. We were just about a half mile uh, in that direction. I knocked on the door of a home. Uh, A gentleman came to the door. We introduced ourselves. I had never met the man before. Nobody in our team had ever met the man before. We introduced ourselves to him, and we said, we're from Central Baptist Church, and we're, we're just making an effort to knock on every uh, home in a one-mile radius to meet you, to greet you, if there's anything we can pray for you about, and, and share the gospel with you if we could, and invite you to our church. And he smiled, and he said, oh, I'm a member of Central Baptist Church. He didn't know who I was. And so I stuck my hand out to him, and I said, well, I'm the pastor of Central Baptist Church. It's about time we met. At the time, I'd been pastor here for about a decade. And I said, well, friend, you're a member of Central Baptist Church. When's the last time you came? When's the last time you were in attendance? He said, oh, probably somewhere around 1963. Now, here's the problem. Because of the church cultural context, he sees no conflict in having these two contrary realities in his life over over 50 years of not attending the church and at the same time still claiming to be a member of the church. What witness is he bearing to our community? One of the things he's bearing to our community is The testimony, the membership of the church has no bearing upon your life, your witness, your worship, your gathering with the saints. This is the heart behind Paul's instructions in these verses that we read today. Paul is giving instructions to the church and he's tying what he's going to say in verses 14, 15, and 16 to to what has just come before. So he's saying, listen, I've given these instructions to about the overseer and deacon so that you will know how to behave in the church. And in these few short verses, he gives us some instructive understanding about what is the church of the living God. 
So today, I want us to consider these things. Number one, I want us to talk about whose church it is, that it's the Lord's church and what that means. Secondly, I want us to talk about the church's purpose. Why do we exist and what do we do? And then lastly, what is our message? What is it that we proclaim to our community around us? But let's begin with the church, the, 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 the possession, the ownership of the church. And I, and I would just simply say the church is the Lord's possessive church. And I, I would just point you uh, to verse 15. So Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, I, I really want to come and be with you presently, physically, but, but in case I am delayed, he says, I, I'm writing these things. I'm writing this letter to give you instruction. And listen to what he says in verse 10, 15. If I, if I delay that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul makes clear that this church, that the church that he was writing to of Timothy, every faithful fellowship of believers is possessed by the Lord. If it is a church, it is by definition the Lord's church. And there are some things that when we understand proper ownership, it gives us understanding too. So ownership first and foremost determines order. Paul described uh, excuse me, Paul desired to be with the church in person. That's what he says in verse 14. But, but recognizing that it may be some time before he could be with them, he writes these instructions so that they would know how to, and the word he uses is behave. Behave. That word simply means to conduct oneself with an apparent focus upon overt daily behavior, to live, to conduct, to behave. Now you've heard this phrase. You've heard this word before. Most of you, particularly if you grew up in the South, when you exited your home as a child, your mom would say to you, now you ought to what? Behave yourself. She didn't define what that meant because you knew what that meant. That meant whether you were in her kitchen you were in a neighbor's home, you were in the church, or you were in the schoolhouse, you better conduct yourself in a manner that she found proper and appropriate, right? You better behave yourself. Our cultural context holds up today personal autonomy as the highest right. When personal autonomy is so exalted, the basic functions of living in a society and community start breaking down. I want to be very clear. The church is not a collection of individuals. The church is a body of Christ followers who have confessed Jesus as their Lord. And if Jesus is your Lord, then the way you behave and who determines the proper order of your life is not you under your autonomy. It is the Lord whom you have submitted to. The order of the church is not determined by the desires of the members, the cultural norms of our community. The order of the church is determined by the Lord who is the ruler of the church. Verse 15 makes clear who is the owner and possessor of the church. The church of the living God. 
if you were instructed in good manners growing up, you know that when you visit someone's home, you follow the lead and you follow their lead and you submit to the instructions of the homeowner for all kinds of things, for for proper behavior in their house. Some people require you to remove your shoes before you enter their home. And if when you hit the door, if the homeowner asks you to do that, then the proper manner is for you to obey. Some people don't allow food to be taken anywhere beyond the kitchen or the dining room. And if you're in someone else's home, even if you get to eat in the den, if they say food only stays in the kitchen or dining area, stay in the kitchen or dining area. There may be certain shows that you watch in your home that somebody else doesn't watch in their home. And when you go to their house, then they get to determine what's appropriate to watch on television and those sort of things. Because when you go to someone else's house because they own the home, because it is their household, they determine the proper order of their house. You follow that? Who determines the proper order of the church? It's the household of God. Thus, God determines the proper order of the church. We often refer to church as my church, your church. And we don't mean anything theologically wrong about that. We just simply are, are indicating that you are a member of a particular church. And that's certainly appropriate or, and, and fine and good. I'm not challenging that, that phraseology. But friends, we do need to be mindful that your church is not your kingdom. And your church is not your household. Your church is under the authority of the living God. We have entered into the house of God. The church of the living God submits to the rule of God and in its order and in under his authority. Ownership determines order and ownership determines purpose. These instructions are for the church to know how they are to behave in the household of God. The, the word household points to the connection and related purpose. A closer look at the two words is helpful to understand this point. So uh, the two words here are household and the word church. The word household simply means that the family consisting of those related by blood and marriage, as well as slaves and servants living in the same house or, or homestead. So all those who are under the same roof, under the same directive purpose of the head of the household. And then the word church that, 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 uh, that Paul uses here, we often, ecclesia, it's a combination of two words that we often define in their, in their literal meanings of the called out ones. And that's, that's appropriate and fine. That's right to understand ecclesia in that way. But in its common usage in the New Testament, ecclesia references not just individuals that are called to a same belief or political ideology or have some common understanding. No, it is always in a reference or most often in reference to a congregation, a gathering of Christians that have identified themselves as being bound to one another in a common purpose and a common church. It is used most often in the New Testament as an implying and interacting membership that the members of the church would know who are in the church and who are not in the church. An assembly, a grouping of intentional gathering for the work and purposes of God. 
Both of these words recognize that the church is defined in its membership, in its expectations, and in its connectiveness. These words point to the connection, connection with one another and in our submission to the Lord. I would just point you to the fact that there's a difference, a significant difference between visiting a home and being part of the household. You may come to my house someday, and if you do, we are likely to welcome you into our home. And if we welcome you into our home, the distinction between a guest and one of my family members may be hard to distinguish because if we welcome you into our home as a guest, you're going to eat the same food that we provide to our children. You'll sit at the same table that we gather around to eat. If we, if we gather in the den, we'll sit on the same furniture and, and we'll enjoy the same things and, and we will be together under the same house. And so in one sense, all the resources, all the blessings, all the good things will be the same both for children and for guests. If you're out of town, you're spending the night, we'll provide you a bed and, and all the comforts that come along with that. But here's the difference. If you're a guest, at some point, you got to go. Amen? You can't stay maybe a night or two, but you, I'm not paying for your college. I'm not buying you a car. I'm not paying for your gas. You can't stay when it comes time for inheritance, you don't get any because you're not in the household. And here's another distinction. You may enjoy the same benefits as my children, but the expectations are different. I'm going to be a little bit more gracious to you because you're a guest and you're not staying. But for my children, people in my household, there's an expectation of how they behave, how they speak, the proper order of our home. The church is the possession of the living God. God sets the purpose and direction for his church like the head of a household sets the purpose and direction of their home. Members of the household of God must be and are by definition submissive to his purpose and his plan. We have come under the household of God. He is not invited into our household. Ownership determines order. It determines uh, um, purpose and ownership determines rights. Our spiritual context is, our cultural context is very sensitive to rights today. Rights are a moral or legal entitlement to have or to do something. When the ownership of the church is rightly understood, you understand that you only have the right to obey the Lord. It is correct to talk about rights in a political context. It's right to talk about them in, uh, in judicial or social arenas. But in the church, friends, you should speak more of submissive obedience than personal rights. Rights make demands. But submissiveness recognizes that God is in authority over his church. The church is the possession of the living God. Therefore, he alone has rights in the church. It is the Lord's church. Secondly, the church must be about its purpose. So what is the church's purpose? Well, look at the second part of verse 15 and into verse 16. So he says, 
one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The church's purpose. What do we do? What are we called to do? The first thing the church does is we proclaim the truth. The last phrase of verse 15 and the first part of verse 16 testify to the purpose of the church. Verse 15 says that we support the truth. Verse 16 uh, identifies that we confess the truth. The word that is translated there in verse 16 as confess is a, a word that simply means to admit what is true. Now, it's the same word that is used in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. You may be very familiar with that phrase, we, that verse. We often use it when, when, when sharing the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, because if you confess, the same word used in 1 Timothy three sixteen, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses. The same word again and is saved. Now, in common usage, our common usage, the word confess is often used in a negative context in that when oftentimes we use the word confess, we mean something like confess to a crime, saying something that is true that you don't want to say out loud. That's an appropriate use of the word, but it's not the only worse use of the word. To confess in the context of this usage, is simply to declare or admit what is true. Friends, the church is a congregation of people who have confessed as true Jesus as Lord and have confessed that they believe that God raised him from the dead. We are related by the blood of Jesus and we are unified in obedience to the word of God. God created man with a natural desire to proclaim, to confess the truth. If you were aware that a highway bridge was out and you noticed that a unaware motorist was driving rapidly, quickly, toward that bridge that was out. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your standing socially or economically or academically or, 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 or uh, economic, it doesn't really matter who you are or what you are. Because of the created order of God, there's something deep within all of us that would compel you to wave that car down and confess to them, that bridge is out, go another way because there's nothing but danger and destruction that way. In fact, because that's such a natural, God-given reality for us, we would judge it as immoral, wicked for you to know the bridge is out and see a car coming and not do everything in your power to warn them away from the danger that is about to befall them. The truth of salvation from sin and the wrath of God is found only in Jesus. The testimony of the church, our purpose of the church, 
is to make the truth of salvation known to the world. That in sin, the world is under the wrath of God, but that Jesus has made a way for those who are condemned under the wrath of God to be made right with God. The church's purpose is to proclaim that truth. And related to that, the church's purpose is to testify to that truth. To proclaim the truth is to declare it. Jesus saves. Sin condemns. God is coming again to judge the world. Believe on Jesus today and be saved from your sin. To proclaim the truth is to declare that. To testify to the truth is to live it. The truth of the gospel must permeate every element of the church. You cannot declare to the world that Jesus is the Lamb of God, worthy of all worship, honor, and praise, then at the same time treat public worship of the church as something that can be ignored or skipped. You may be declaring the truth, but you're bearing witness to something else. You cannot declare that Jesus is the sovereign Lord and then pick and choose the commandments to follow. You may be declaring it correctly, but you're living and testifying something else. You cannot declare that the church is the bride of Christ and then treat the church as something of minor importance. You may be declaring it properly, but you're bearing witness with your life as something else. Friends, the church is the testimony of the gospel in the community, in the world. It's the testimony of the gospel in what we preach. We guard the pulpit. We guard the teaching and preaching ministry of the church because we understand it matters how we proclaim the gospel. But the church is also the testimony in what it does. It's the testimony of the gospel and what it refrains from and what it celebrates. It's a testimony to the gospel and how the members of the church live. When you say, I'm a member of Central Baptist Church, you're bearing a testimony to the gospel, friends. And we with you. It's a testimony of the gospel and how the members treat one another. A testimony without words is ineffective. Words without a testimony are easily ignored. Words with a supporting testimony is a powerful witness indeed. We proclaim the truth. We testify to the truth. And then it's interesting, the words that Paul uses here tell us that we support the truth. Paul uses two words in verse 15 to describe the purpose of the church. He uses the words pillar and buttress. A pillar is, you know, a column, a supporting structure that that, that rises up to support something above it, usually visible. We have pillars at the front of our church that hold up the, the awning and the roof. A buttress is a supporting structure. Now, when I hear the word buttress, I, I, I think of the flying buttresses of the cathedrals of Europe. But it, but it, and that's an appropriate usage of the word, but, but the word here that Paul uses means it, that which provides the basis or foundation of belief, practice, or support. In fact, I even heard uh, one commentator use the, to translate it as the, the basement. In other words, the idea is the, the ground-level foundation of everything that's built on top of it.
The church is not the truth. The church does not define the truth. God is the truth. God is true. And his word is true. The church supports the testimony of the truth of God. The simplicity and profundity of this is breathtaking. So just go with me for a minute here. What Paul is saying is that the church is to be the supporting structure of God's truth in the world. The church should reflect God's truth. It should certainly teach God's truth. It should certainly advance God's truth. It should live out God's truth. That we bear witness, that we support, we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth of God in this world. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, when the wicked world around us observes us as the church, are we supporting, are we the foundation of the truth of God in our community, or are we distracting and taking away from it? Let the church be the pillar and buttress of the truth of the living God. Now listen, the church does many things that are good. Ministries of help and ministries of teaching, ministries of comfort. And all these things the church does, it must not lose sight of its purpose to support God's truth. There are many things that the church is tempted to become. Sometimes we're tempted to, to, to reach for political importance or influence. Sometimes we, we desire economic power or, or social acceptability or cultural celebration. The reality of the church today is that we're struggling to understand ourselves as cultural Christianity has taken away from us our political and our economic and our social uh, 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 power and influence. And now we're saying, what do we do now? Oh, friends, we do what God's always called us to be, to be the pillar and buttress of the truth in our community. When a church abandons its purpose of supporting the truth of God, it may attain some other goal. But it no longer is the church of the living God. The church's purpose, proclaim the truth, testify to the truth, and support the truth. And then in verse 16, Paul reaffirms the message of the church. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, speaking of Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Three things here. First, Jesus came to bring salvation from sin. So in response to verse 15, Paul recites what is likely a hymn in verse 16. That's why if you're reading in your scripture that many of your translations have offset this, like it's a poem because this is most likely either it was a creed that was well known to the church or likely, and could be both, a hymn. Either way, Paul is probably quoting something that the church would have been easily to, to reframe or, or to, to repeat as well. It's kind of like if I were to start singing Amazing Grace, even without the, the words in front of you, many of you could recite that because you've heard it so often. It's just kind of part of your collective memory. Paul recites this hymn. It was a short testimony of the gospel. 
The gospel is the confession of the church, is what he's saying. The, the most simple testimony of the gospel is Jesus came in the flesh, he physically died for our sins, he was put in the tomb, and he rose again. And you see that model, that same main points of the gospel in this hymn. It begins with saying he was manifested in, he, he was manifesting, uh, manifested in the flesh. The hope of the gospel begins with Jesus coming in the flesh. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because all have sinned, all deserve rightly the full, unrestrained wrath and punishment of God. In your own power, the only way for you to atone for your sin is to personally suffer and die under the wrath of God. But Jesus, God himself, came in the flesh and lived without sin in that flesh so that, we, so that he could give himself as a perfect sacrifice for you and me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. Then he says he was proclaimed among the nations. Jesus came in the flesh, and today, brothers and sisters, we make it known that the gospel is available. I don't know a better word to tell you today other than the gospel is available to all. Proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world is how Paul recites this hymn. In the gospel of John, Jesus declared that whoever believes in him will be saved from their sin. You know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The church proclaims this truth today that the opportunity of salvation is now and it is available to all who would confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. The gospel is available to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. In other words, it doesn't matter where you, are, where you were born or what language you speak or where you come from. If you can hear my voice today, the gospel is available to you. The gospel is available to every sinner. Jesus said, whosoever. What that means is it doesn't matter what you have done, how vile your sin is, or how much you have sinned, or how long you have sinned. The gospel is available to you. The gospel is available to all who believe God raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as Lord. And then lastly, he says, taken up in glory. Now, I would just encourage you, friends, Jesus is coming again. The last phrase is a little tricky in that it seems to be referring to Jesus ascending to heaven after his resurrection. Now, this certainly is a legitimate reading of the text, but it, 
but it may also or may be referring to the second coming of Jesus. Either way, however it is best understood, either way the hope remains the same, that Jesus is coming again to fully and completely establish his kingdom. Jesus instructed his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them and that he would come again. He tells us that in John chapter 14 where he says, and, I, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, praise God, and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Paul instructed the, the Thessalonians on how the second coming of Jesus would happen. He said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will first rise. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The hope of the gospel is to be free from sin, free from the curse of sin, and forever present with the Lord. The concluding words of John's revelation is a prayer spoken by every follower of Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testified to these things says, Surely, Speaking of Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. Surely I am coming again. And then the, John, the Revel, John who received the revelation said, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I mentioned to you that I was a child of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. During the 1970s and 80s, it was a popular concept for churches to have gyms and athletic facilities. During that time, my home church built a facility that boasted a gymnasium that also doubled as a uh, roller skating rink complete with skates that you could check out. It had a racquetball court. It had a weight room and a game room and, and then even locker rooms that included uh, showers and steam rooms. When it was built, it was considered a very well-equipped facility. When the building opened for use, it required membership similar to what you would get at any uh, gym that you might go to today. You had to have a membership card. You had, back in those days, they wanted you to wear a, a, a name tag that indicated that you were supposed to be there. You had to check in and check out. Over time, the use of the facility as a location to work out grew less and less. The weight room was really too small for anyone who was serious about weightlifting. Church activities oftentimes occupied the gym, so it couldn't always be used by those who wanted uh, to use it, that were using it as a building as like a, a membership. Uh, the racquetball court was only one, and so it only allowed for one game at a time, which was a bit of a, a difficulty in scheduling. And it wasn't laid out well. And the other reality was the church had built that in the 80s, but since its building, other gyms had come to town that were better equipped, better laid out, easier to get to. And so those who were using the building as a place to go work out chose to go to the other places rather than to drive downtown and go to the church's building. 
The church would eventually abandon the original idea of the building and repurpose it for church ministry use. Church building recreation facilities weren't new to the 1970s and 80s. One of the oddities of churches doing this, you can find in the, in the late eight, uh, uh, 1800s, early 1900s, it was a thing for churches to build bowling alleys in their basement. And even today, there are some churches that have bowling leagues that meet at their church, even some of them having full bars and everything else. It's a strange concept to, to us. Such things as gyms, church gyms and even bowling alleys are curiosities that are more about the cultural context of the day they were installed than the God-ordained purpose of the church. Now, I want to be clear, I, church gymnasiums, even bowling alleys are neither good nor bad. However, the church must always be mindful of its purpose to be the pillar and buttress of truth. Things like gyms and bowling alleys have maybe a moment of usefulness, but at some point they look out of touch. They seem strange because they're not core. They're not central. They're not mission critical to the purpose of the church. Methods of ministry are constantly changing, but the church's purpose never changes. From generation to generation until Jesus comes again. The church of the living God must be about its purpose, to proclaim the truth, testify to the truth, support the truth. Because the Lord has commanded it and the church has been tasked with it, let the church be the testimony of and proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The encouraging word is, I am witnessing today many in the church coming back to its purpose. Paul gives these instructions for us today as we think about the proper order of the church to also think about the proper purpose of the church, that we might be most faithful in our generation and the generations to come. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.